Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Y'all are going to like her. Oh my gosh. She's so lovely. She's just like a breath of like beautiful fresh air. I don't know. I I really enjoyed her presence. Yeah. You know, I find myself always in my life venturing out, exploring this, exploring that, exploring this, exploring that, and always coming back for me personally, always coming back to this, uh, like 50, 50 split, perfect kind of balance between like, I'm going to lean into more of like this spiritual, um, unnameable, Hmm. energetic side of healing and then also balance it with like let's talk about the neuroscience and like why it works in the brain like you know this about me this is like Mm -hmm. that's like where I get off right and there's Mm -hmm. something about somebody who does that with such ease that can like incorporate both sides almost of the brain so easily that makes me feel so calm and like safe with them. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you have an ability to bring both things together. There's something really safe in that for me. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because I think, you know, you, I watch you sometimes really, um, feel contained in the space of someone can back up what they're saying, or this Mm -hmm. is like the, the science behind this, or this is the research. Right. And a lot of times like (laughs) that is where I will start to sort of zone out a little bit, but someone's presence and the way that they are in their body is like what I feel safe in. And I feel Mm -hmm. like she has such a beautiful blend to your point of, she's just really incredibly intelligent. You can tell in the way she speaks about what she's um, sharing. And there's something energetically about being in her presence. That's like a deep exhale. Yeah. She's embodied. I think Mm. that that might be part of it. It's like when you're in the presence of somebody who's truly embodied, Mm -hmm. it's like, it is just, it's a very grounding feeling and, and you can't not feel it. Yeah. You know? And I, and I think that she, she has a lot to share and a lot to offer the world. And I'm grateful that we get to bring her to everybody. Yeah. We got to meet her. Enjoy you guys. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Today's guest is, I have a lot of questions. I'm super interested and and curious to dive into this conversation. So today we have Allison Chowla with us, and she is a psychotherapist, a writer, a life coach, a mother, a spiritual counselor, all the things. She holds a master's degree in social work and psychotherapy from Fordham University, but she has a ton of certifications, things like life coaching, applied neuropsychology, neuroscience. Um, And before her years of clinical training, she spent over a decade training in Eastern philosophies of healing. Um, She is trained in Reiki. She's trained in tapping, which I want to talk more about too, um, but cultivating a diverse set of skills that influence the change-focused, empathetic, and unique approach that she provides to her clients. Allison, we are thrilled to have you with us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. This is fantastic. 
Yeah, you know, just such a diverse background. And I mm-hmm. feel like as we were talking about your story a little bit um, before we hopped on, Vanessa and I were just so curious to hear sort of the journey to doing this work. And we'd love to hear a little bit about your your trajectory. You. Yeah, <laughs> your origin. Absolutely. You know, I have to say that I always knew on some level that I wanted to be a healer or that I was destined to be a healer. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was young, it was something that made me feel very different and awkward, honestly, at times, because I could feel things in a room that other people were not as in tune to, and that made me sensitive and really quite anxious at times. Mm -hmm. Regardless of my experiences, I always knew that I wanted to heal people in many different ways. Um, I knew that like I had something about wanting to lay hands, which is where the Reiki and the Sami came in. Um, And there was also this element of feeling like I could communicate with people on an energetic level And so that's something that I really wanted to explore, excuse me. Um, And it just kind of, you know, one thing after the other just felt essential Mm -hmm. for what I wanted to do and how I wanted to help a number of people. So it was just one certification and practice after the other. And then really uh, I had gotten most of my uh, certificates and practices in the Eastern practices before I became a psychotherapist, but what I realized that there were so many people that were unable to reach me for what they wanted or what they needed and really were unable to afford me because nobody, no insurance company covers coaching. Right. No insurance company is covering Reiki. Right. And so though I wanted to educate myself and I wanted that clinical background, the primary drive was to reach many people. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you, let me ask you this. Cause I I'm super curious about that direction into Fordham. I was saying to Danae, I'm like, your background is so spiritually and energetically enriched. And that's kind of the place that it comes from. And then you decide what, what made you decide to go to Fordham? Cause to me, I'm an East coaster. So like, to me, it's like, we're talking like Ivy league East coast type school. And, you know, Danae and I went to Pacifica graduate Institute. So we went to like the woo woo grad school and loved every minute of it. Right. And it has like profoundly changed both of us, but your direction to me feels like, Oh, wow. Fordham. Like what made you choose Fordham? Well, I I had visited multiple universities. Um, I had looked at NYU, Columbia, and I noticed that, you know, NYU, for example, is is a magnificent institution, but everybody there, at least in my orientation, looked like me. Mm, And um, Columbia, also fantastic, but it just, something about it didn't quite resonate with me. And when I went to Fordham and I went to that open house, I had um, a rabbi sitting by me. There was a Buddhist monk there. There was women, there were men, uh, there were transgender, there was a priest from India there. And I just thought, this is where I'm meant to be. All right, Fordham. These are the people that I learn the most yeah. from. And they were also incredibly mother friendly. Mm. Although at the time I, I did not have children yet, but they were very mother friendly. They were very working student friendly. And I just thought they really cared about the students and they had such a diverse group that I wanted to be around. And then that's why I chose Fordham. It's a good reason. I love that so much. And I think that so much of what my challenge with 
you know, our mental health in this country in general is the accessibility. And that's so often, um, you know, I worked in community mental health before I went into private practice. And it's just like, uh, the people that need the support the most are often the ones that are getting it the least in our country. Um, so I, I love that that was the motivation. Um, what does your practice look like today? Awesome. Um, I do primary, primarily psychotherapy because it's been very difficult to have anyone in person. Right. So I absolutely include all of my other techniques with people if they want energy healing or they want some kind of intuitive reading. I mm. incorporate that into the uh, sessions. But at the moment, because of the pandemic, most people are dealing with so much grief that mm. most of the work is really focused on mental health. Mm. Uh, but I still have a really lovely, diverse group of people. And it's just interesting when you're a practitioner, people who want what you have find you. So, yes, you know, totally. it's like, I never get someone that comes into a session and when I mention something like, oh, would you like a little bit of, uh, you know, remote energy healing? They're like, remote energy? <laughs> what? <gasps> you do that? You know, they just, you find the right people. We, we find each other. So it's- Yeah, we actually were told in school that the clients that you need find you. Absolutely. Right. I would agree with that hmm. 100%. And I tell my clients when they thank me, I am getting just as much and learning just as much from them as they are from me. And totally. it's just this beautiful, beautiful exchange. I love that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on this moment in history that you're seeing clients through. How have you been holding this time with clients? What, what's really been the consistent theme that's come up for you? Gosh, it's been, this has been like nothing that I've ever experienced before mm. and like nothing that I've seen. I would say what was consistent in the beginning was uh, the inability to find hope because nobody mm. had any idea when this was going to end. It's, it hasn't ended. Yeah. Um, if it was going to be like this for the rest of our lives. And so it was the first time that I had really struggled even myself giving people hope or guiding them to hope because I didn't know the answers either. Whereas in other situations I'm trained or I have the adversity and I can kind of help them go step by step. But this was like, look, we're walking into, we're walking blind together. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the other difficult thing was, you know, I was struggling with the same things that everyone else was struggling. I was worried about my children. I was worried about my health. I was wondering if anything was going to be normal again. Um, and so for me, the challenge was removing myself and continuing to be empathetic and not involving myself and my feelings in the sessions, which mm. is something that is already challenging as a therapist or a practitioner. Um, but this was the hardest it's ever been. I would imagine it's almost even more difficult because of your additional gifts and your ability to sort of tap into the energy the way that you do. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you create boundaries around that? Well, I do exactly that. I set boundaries before mm -hmm. session. I have a way of meditating. I'll do a little bit of my own type of prayer mm -hmm. before I work with anyone that will allow me to heal them, but keep myself removed from it. Yes. Um, and I'm I take about 10 minutes between every session at least to reset myself, to remind myself or to reestablish the boundaries and just come fresh to the next person each time. Mm. But this is the self-care has had to really step up during yeah. this. Agreed. 
Yeah. I think that's been sort of the consistent thing that we've heard therapists talking about. It's just such a unique moment in history where whatever the boundaries were the, I don't want to say wall, cause it doesn't feel like, but yeah. you know, we're, we're all in our homes. Our, our clients are seeing our lives in a way that mm-hmm. they never would have normally and having access to us in a very different way. And so it's really humanized us, I think for our clients. 100% agree with that. Yes. And there's been something really wonderful about that. Whereas in the past, we were so concerned about boundaries and ethics. And so it's mm-hmm. been very interesting to watch the shift occur where we had to be a little more relaxed about certain boundaries or mm. we had to come up with new terms for mm-hmm. things uh, and not worry so much about something that would be considered an ethical boundary. Like you mentioned, my, my children starting to yell in the background right. or by yes. the screen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I've tried to make sure that never happened, but it inevitably it happens. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I mean, what are your thoughts, I guess, on, I mean, I have my own, this idea of like, let's say tomorrow we snap our fingers, pandemic is gone. Mm -hmm. We're back to quote unquote, whatever normal is. Right. But within our profession, I mean, how do you see it changing, I guess, like moving forward? Because I don't see it actually going back to how it was before. I actually don't know how it's possible. I, I think this, like, the connection, the deeper human level that we've kind of attained, like you said, these kind of boundaries that I get it. Like I understand why they were there and the like dehumanizing, I think of the therapist was, I felt like a problem prior, but I'm curious, like, what do you think is going to stick with us as we move forward in this? That's a great question. Uh, And first of all, I like that you used quotations for normal because I say the same thing. Normal is such a relative term Mm -hmm. that it's it's difficult to answer depending on the experience. I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. I think we're going to have to make a lot of changes. I think we're going to have to rewrite, reestablish what things are for people. Um, I think a lot of people have actually really enjoyed doing this on video. Yeah. Because so I I imagine that a lot of people are going to stay using this venue because now it's like you can do therapy at lunch versus taking 20 minutes to get to the office and another 20 minutes to get back. Um, But I think there's gonna be a very, still, I think we have a ways to go and we still have a tough shift, even if things by miracle were to get back to normal tomorrow, because we've really been holding on, we've really been fighting, we've really been working hard to survive and inevitably there tends to be a crash after that level of resilience. Yeah. So I think, we have a ways to go. Um, and I, I've compared it to sort of the PTSD from World War II um, or that the generational influences from the Great Depression, mm-hmm. you know, you three generations later that was still affecting people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do think this is going to take time to, to heal from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I was just having a similar conversation, I think yesterday with somebody around, um, I mean, we were talking specifically about parenting styles, but just this idea that like, you don't see the kind of, um, I don't know what the word is like, uh, effect, I suppose, um, of mm-hmm. things usually for a while. Right. Absolutely. And I'm so curious, we were talking about like, so somebody said, so what is this generation called? Right. Like if we're talking about Gen Z, like what's the generation out of that after that? And I said, COVID babies. And a friend of mine said, COVIDians, that's the new generation. And I was like, 
Well, first of all, trademark that, but second of all, that's sad. And third of all, it's true. Like this generation is going to be impacted in a profound way by, even if they're too young to like, quote unquote, remember there's going to be impact, economical impact, familial structure impact, right? Like there's just so much that we have no idea. And just the social norms, the way they are, these children that have become so accustomed to having to wear a mask, yep. uh, you know, the, the trauma that that may cause, the discomfort socially, and like you said, the socioeconomic status of some situations has been so terrible that we know what poverty does to people. It causes depression, abuse, drug abuse. I mean, I'm very concerned about what will happen in the long run for a lot of people. and. The teenagers that have gone through this, I'm particularly concerned about them. Yeah, agreed. How yeah, are you? Because the little ones are a little bit more resilient, right? I mean, not res- I, oh. I hate when people say that kids are so resilient, but they, they, they've got some more time to bounce back. I, I agree. The teenagers, I'm a little more worried about. Yes, they have more time to bounce back. And the teenagers, I mean, that is such an important developmental stage. Mm. None of them have been able to go through anything that would be, again, normal for a yeah. teenager to Ritual. do. The rituals, exactly. right? So they really are missing out on such an important part of their lives. And then they're going to be forced to be adults. And then they're going to have to be, you know, they're going to be going through PTSD and recovering from this without having had that developmental stage. And, you know, it shows over and over again in research that a child, for example, that's parentified, you know, a kid Mm. that is kind of thrown into the parenting role. Mm -hmm. The family has a lot of issues as they age. (laughs) (laughs) when all that one (laughs) in there but you know it's it's really it's so sad to see that inevitably there's going to be a lot to deal with right so I always love to ask you know you mentioned that you were a parent before we got on um how are you holding this with your your own children child did you say you have one child I have two girls I have two daughters yeah so Um, how are you holding this time for them what are you saying about this to them We've been very transparent and we have focused a lot on gratitude. Mm. We've also let them, we, we're, we're not a family that hides feelings. Mm. And so we have also expressed that it's okay to be afraid, that we have even been afraid. We just really had an open line of communication. Yeah. And I tried, you know, early on, I too was very concerned and like, very sad about the things that my children were missing out on, like going to school. And then I realized, okay, they are so young that this is all new for them and I can't project onto them what Mm. I think they're missing or what I think they should be sad about. So I just tried to make everything as normal as possible, focus on like tiny pockets or moments of joy, keep them involved in, in things like music and art. I mean, like the, the craft closet is like nothing I ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And we just, you know, we just tried to get very creative, but we had our struggles as well. You know, it's, even though I do this for a living, I'm still human. I still worry. I still yeah. have fear. Um, and we just fortunately worked through it. And I would say it, it brought us even closer as a family. Yeah. So we focused on the love. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us because I feel like more than anything where I've been most transparent, I feel like in my work with clients is around the challenges 
as a parent. And I think that, you know, there's just something about normalizing. This is really impossible for all of us. And here's how we're getting through it. Um, and I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying it was, it was hard. Yeah. Really hard. Yeah. And I think there's something too, that's really powerful about what you said about this, you know, us reacting to what has been our quote normal, our way of like what things should be our childhood that we're feeling like they're missing out on. Well, that isn't going to be their experience of their childhood. And maybe that's not bad. You know, I've heard so many parents talk about children being behind and it's like, well, what is behind if everybody (laughs) is behind, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and behind in what, right? I mean, you and I have had these conversations today. It's like, you know, the way the school system is structured, like, why is it structured that way? Well, it's been structured that way since the industrial revolution and like what, you know, mm-hmm. and so all of these things that really stopped working for us a long time ago that we just yeah. were really uncomfortable changing got yeah. forced to change. Right. And so when we say they're behind, like, okay, so rethink it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And definitely, you know, apparently one of my kids is behind in math right now and her lovely teacher was so compassionate talking to me and I was like it's fine I'm not worried <laughs> we're, we're good way. <laughs> we're it's not fine. concerned I know <laughs> she's in first grade we will figure it out we'll get her a tutor but she's in like, first grade how could she be behind in math you're adding I'm behind in math and I'm almost 40 I still don't know my multiplication tables okay everybody calm down I'm fine <laughs> calculator under the table when I help my nine-year-old I mean can I I think this might be a (laughs) this might be a thing with therapists that teachers talk to us about like what's happening in terms of academics and it's it's fine yeah (laughs) how are they feeling right exactly what's her like emotional intelligence like how is she showing up in the class is she she happy everything else will fall (laughs) she's good percent like she seems first grade she's behind enough that makes my head explode like what are you talking about that's so great what you're saying with the structure and we know that so it's shown that like math has been designed for the male brain and the way that that works Hmm. uh not really been revisited although they are approaching math in a completely different way that i still i have no idea don't understand yeah i've had so many parents be like i can't do math anymore because my kid brings it home and it's this whole new technique and you're like what is Yes, but I, it's because I think these things need to be re- revisited. And also, like, we, we have not been in school. They haven't mm. been in the classroom until uh, we are fortunate where we are. But, you know, I think that those things will work themselves out with um, the right care and attention. And I'm saying this as someone who is privileged and my kids go to a good school. And so yes. I, I say that with such gratitude because I know not everyone is as fortunate. Um, but yeah, we're all kind of behind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So can I like totally divert the conversation? Cause I think that you might be, unless we just maybe never got into it with other people, but you might be the first person um, that we've talked to. And this is like very alive for me because I had a really interesting kind of um, meditation dream about a friend of Danae's and mine that passed pretty recently. Um, you might be the first person on the podcast that we've had that has training in EFT and in, in tapping. Mm-hmm. And I would love for our listeners, if you could actually give a little bit of an explanation around that, how you incorporate that. I think as a psychotherapist, like having that technique, mm-hmm. um, is, is really special and, and I've used it. I mean, I haven't myself been trained, but I've had therapists use it on me and I think it could be really powerful. And I'd love if you could just kind of give us like, what is it? why were you drawn to it? What kind of changes have you seen it, I guess, 
allow in people, things like that? Sure. So I was drawn to it because of all of the Eastern uh, techniques that I was practicing. And I had been studying the meridian points on the mm -hmm. body. Um, and so meridian points, which are like pressure points, um, I, a lot of people don't realize that these are also connected to neurons and neurofiring. And very much like EMDR, what tapping does uh, with practice, with time, is it can actually rewire the neurofiring, or as I would compare it to, um, redirect the train tracks. Mm. And so it, there's something so incredibly uh, Eastern about it, and yet it's explained very scientifically in the Western world as well. So for me, the draw really came from I can really get anybody to understand this and try this. And it's something that is so effective if you put the time in, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that touch, uh, laying hands, you know, even with children, just like physical rubbing for kids who have like sensory issues, really stimulating the nervous system is such a healthy thing. Um, and so I love getting my clients and people involved uh, in healing themselves mm -hmm. with tapping. And so basically what we do is we focus on certain meridian points and the tapping that I do, the meridian points are on the head and the face and the chest mm -hmm. um, primarily. And we just go through like a very slow practice and I will do it with them at times. And what happens is not only does the, the rhythm itself of the tapping, for example, like instantly starts to calm people down. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, especially when they kind of get to this point mm -hmm. They really, you can see the body, the mind, everything start to slow down. And so they are changing their mind while they're relaxing their body. And it's something that anybody can do. Hmm. You know, it's not, it, it's great to have a certification. You want to go to somebody who knows what they're doing uh, because you can also over tap or you can hmm. tap places that can make you feel anxious but it's something that anybody can learn to do. They can do it on their own. You can do it in the privacy of your home and it's incredibly effective. So wow. it has that like lovely spiritual element, but it has the science behind it too. Well, I feel like that's so much of um, what all of these healing techniques are, right? Like the people who came before us knew a lot more, I think, than we Absolutely. pretend to give them credit for. And now that we actually have the quote unquote science to like back it up now we're like, but it's science. Right. And it's like, they knew. <laughs> 100%. And that's yeah. why I, you know, I say like, here's the science. I, you know, I sort of laugh a bit because this is just an ancient practice mm -hmm. that we who need to intellectualize through things in order to accept them yes. as science on. But nobody had a book they were writing scientific theory in back then. They just had the, sim the simple intuition with the body connection and mind and, and began doing this. Like acupuncture, yeah. like acupressure, meditation, all of these things. Yeah, yeah. so true. Absolutely. I was, I was just talking to, um, a, a friend and a, and a clinician of mine. Um, and she, so she, she's a person of color and she's been having a lot of conversations around, uh, and she's been like reaching out to people in her community to, to start these conversations around, um, just this, which is like this Western idea of, we discovered it <laughs> because we <laughs> named it and put science on it. Right. And it's like, and indigenous people have been doing all over the world, right? Right. 
since the dawn of time. Um, and so I'm, it's just like very fresh in my mind right now where I'm, I'm starting to like reconsider and rethink about some of the techniques, quote unquote, and some of the things that we use in healing, uh, yes. where it came from, who named it, but actually where it came from. Right. And all of these, so it's just like top of mind. Yes. And you know, I have to share with you, I had asked my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law is an 83 year old Indian woman who is still a practicing doctor, mm -hmm. grew up in the foothills of the Himalayas meditating. She had, you know, she would sit with the Dalai Lama at times, uh, you know, and washed her clothes in a river. And I asked her once, what do you think about us Americans? You know, how we are now suddenly discovering things like yoga over the past couple of decades and meditation. And that was my, you know, my ego saying like, what do you think about us? And her response was honestly, Allison, she said, as long as people are getting mm. the messages, as long as it's starting to heal people yeah, and it's fun. working, that's more important than anything. Mm. And I was just so humbled by that response because she could have been like, well, you know, we, we've been doing that for centuries. We're <laughs> one of the oldest, you know, countries recorded, but it was really so beautiful that she said, I think as long as it's finally getting spread, that's what's important. Yeah, I agree. I, I love that. And I, I think what you said a minute ago is, is spot on, which is different people need to hear things in different ways in order for it to also stick, right. Or to, to work or to make sense for them. And so if me talking about meditation and talking about Buddhist principles doesn't land with you, I can read that as a therapist pretty quickly. <laughs> so I'm going to then talk about the science of mindfulness and all of the research that's been, you know, gone on and why you should do this because how it rewires your brain and all of the science, because they're both true, but sometimes you need to hear it in a certain way in order for it to land with you. And I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Absolutely. And it's just the same with any type of treatment. You know, we, we all see clients and we go, okay, cognitive behavioral therapy, therapy is going to work with this person or this person we're going to need to narrate, re-narrate and or this person we're going to need to mirror. You know, you have to really be willing to speak a number of languages, if you will, to reach a lot of people. And so that's a big part of it. You know, it's just another language mm. more or less, um, mm. has different translations. Yeah. I love that. I love what your mother-in-law said so much too, because I feel like there's such a desire to label things and this is where this came from and this mm -hmm. is the origin. And, and so often there's so much sort of an overlay and like really similar conversations that are being had within these different traditions. And it's, it's just like she said, like, are you, are you feeling a little more healed? <laughs> are you finding a little yeah. bit more peace at the end of the day, the rest is just ego, but like, right. how are you feeling? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was very humbling. Very. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Love it. Well, so where do you see yourself? I mean, we talked a little bit about like where we see therapy, I guess, um, and kind of where that direction is going, but what's for you? Like what's next for you? What are you kind of like working on right now? Where do you see yourself? You know, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of hard to say, cause who the hell knows what's going to happen with COVID. <laughs> what right? do you feel hungry to be doing? <laughs> yes. How about that? What, what are you, what are you called to be doing? I'm actually feeling called to do more things like this, to mm. reach greater groups when possible. I love the intimate work of working with clients, but I do absolutely feel called to start working uh, on a different level where I am talking and more people can listen if they can't get to me or they don't want to get to me. They just mm. want to be able to listen. 
Um, I'm also very interested. I'm working right now on uh, creating a space in the area that I'm in that will provide different types of healing. I'd like to get someone for acupuncture and sound therapy and massage therapy and you know, a couple of therapists in there to have a group that people can come to for all types of healing. Um, but really, I'm very drawn to doing more speaking and doing more podcasts and just getting, you know, like very much like what I just said that my mother-in-law said, like getting it out there, mm. you know, getting it out there on a broader spectrum so more people can hear it um, and more people can appreciate it and then just become more open to things that maybe they haven't had the opportunity to have exposure to. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just thinking as you were speaking, Allison, I have this theory that the world is going to shift into this space where like the way that we work and earn a living is completely different and it will sort of stay, you know, a little bit for the most part, more similar to the way things have been through this pandemic. And then when we come together in community, it's going to be to heal and to um, commiserate and the things that you were just talking about, right? Like that is, I believe, what we're going to be hungry for as a society. What's more potent? Right. Like there's more potency now when we do come together because we have so much more of like a reverence for it now. Mm. And, and I feel like there's less of a, even for me, who's somebody who's extroverted, who needs a lot of like human contact kind of constantly, even if it's at like a surface level, I have found myself being more selective about the human contact that I do Mm. have. Right. And so I think that that's also a big shift. Yeah. And I really hope that the perspective sticks. very easy for people to get privilege back and lose the insight and right. lose the perspective. And so that is something that I'm really hoping sticks. I'm a little concerned won't because I've seen it happen. I mean, you know, I was here, I was in New York for 9-11 and hmm. I just thought, gosh, there's no way after this we could ever turn on each other again. There could ever be cruelty. And right. a few years went by and hmm. there was again, people forget. Hmm very easily to be grateful for your health and be grateful for your safety and and hold on to the lessons that we've learned. So I'm just really hoping that that shift occurs, you know, that we really want to come together in kindness, with gratitude, remembering nobody's perfect. There's always going to be people you don't want to be around. Maybe it's just an energetic mismatch, whatever the case may be, but just remembering what we've been through. I think our kids tend to carry the torch of the memory for us. I learned so much from my daughters, even more than they are learning from me. They remind mm-hmm. me to be a better person, to, mm-hmm. to you know work harder, to keep that perspective. I mean, there's such blessings in my mm-hmm. life for that reason, for many reasons, but that's one of them. It's beautiful. Such a grounding way of speaking to all of this that you have, Allison. It's really yeah. lovely to be in that presence. It makes me feel calm. I know. I feel very we calm in your presence. <laughs> Thank you for making me feel so calm. Um, I have my own days where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Like, I just, I don't know. And then someone says, I feel so much better. I am so at peace. Mm. Like That really clicked when you said it. And I just, you know, I just thank the universe again for guiding me to the work because it's it's clearly what I need to be doing in this life those moments where you have a client be like that was so helpful or that was so profound and you're like it was (laughs) (laughs) really what do I say I don't ever remember saying that okay but I mean if it worked (laughs) 
I love when that happens. They'll say, I'm like, really? Oh, I said that to you? Right on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite is when they come back and recount like something you said, let's say two months ago. And in my head, I'm like, I don't think I said that, but okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. whatever. Like it comes through you, you know? Yeah, just, absolutely. We'll be doing it. Totally. Well, so we have some questions that we ask all of our guests, if we oh, can dig it. into that with you yeah. a little bit. So the first question is, um, who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, people that have influenced you along your journey, whether you've known them or their work? Um, gosh, great question. Um, I would say one of my first um, mentors, teachers was a woman named Cheryl uh, that I became close with shortly after my mother passed away. My mother passed away quite early. Um, I was about 20 mm. at the time. And I had met this woman in the art world of New York and New Jersey. And she was a director of art models and I was taking classes and art modeling. And she really was one of the first people that allowed me to feel completely safe with all of the things about myself and all mm. of the things that I was doing. I, you know, I didn't have to feel crazy if you will for like reading like knowing something about someone I've never met that walked into a room you know uh, she really was fantastic in that sense of making me step into myself mm -hmm. um another person was one of my own therapists that uh in was incredibly encouraging her name is Nell uh, she was my therapist again when I was grieving um and when I at some point through the grief thought maybe I should not do the work because how could someone that had been through such loss and was, was going through that herself then support others? And she would sit there in therapy sessions and at the end say, if you don't do this, you're cheating other people. Look at it that way. Mm -hmm. Really pushed me and made me realize that regardless, I'm still human. I'm still going to have my own traumas, my own experiences, my own shortcomings, but like I needed to do this. Um, my children. Mm -hmm are incredible teachers. My daughters, they, they are able to hold up the mirror for me in ways that is sometimes terrifying and, and sometimes very abrupt, but make me want to change um, mm -hmm. more, more for them and, and my family than I could ever have imagined I would want to do. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, and, and anyone that's really supported me. I have wonderful friends. I've had wonderful professors at Fordham. There's a woman, Dr. Slater. She's called the, she's, she's now a model. She's called the accidental icon. Mm. She was very much like, you need to do this. Mm. <laughs> so those guides, right? Along our journey. Absolutely. That kind of take you by the shoulders and like reorient you and be like, keep going. That's the yeah. direction. Like, yeah. you gotta keep doing this. Um, I guess if I were going to mention big names, I love Brene Brown. I think she's mm -hmm. fantastic. And I love Esther Perel. Mm -hmm. I just think that they are such fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I felt emotional when you were talking about, you know, this woman in your life that came and sort of normalized your gifts. I think there's so many ways that when we feel different or other, and I remember the first therapist that sort of explained to me what an introvert was in a society where you sort of have always felt like there was something wrong with you in a society that really rewards extroversion and someone explaining, this is why you feel this way is so like, oh, oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> and even if I had parents that would say to me, at a young age, you know, they didn't know what was going on, but they would articulate it as, I think you've got some kind of ESP, Allison. Mm. I think you have a gift. 
but they would also tell me I was too sensitive all yeah. the time. Right. Yeah. You are too sensitive. You are too sensitive. And that's just like putting shame and shame mm-hmm. and shame on top of something that is a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. Feel mm-hmm. that. So the next question is around flow state. So what is it that you do in your life where you find yourself in a state of flow where you could just blink your eyes and hours pass? I practice martial arts. Uh, That is my meditation. That's so cool. Thank you. Um, It's really my time. I wake up at like 5, 5.30 in the morning, uh, about three times a week, sometimes four times a week. And... That's not the easy part. That's not the flow part. <laughs> I, I get up. I have a toddler. I understand. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I'm voluntarily doing this after getting through those phases. <laughs> my time for myself, and it's incredibly challenging work because mm-hmm. I train with masters, uh, one female master and one male master, that they're very serious about the craft. Like the movement, the precision, the respect, it's very intense. But when I am in it, you know, I do it for two hours at a time. I just, everything else slips away. I'm Mm. able to remove myself from my worries. I'm able to really just close everything else down and focus on the elements of myself, my body, my mind, my soul, and it makes me so much more peaceful. Honestly, it really has saved me through the pandemic because sure. I burnt all that energy off. It's it's like a meditation mm-hmm. in itself. I mean, movement is meditation for me. Um, and that really, it just puts me in such a different place. And even if I skip a day, I find myself sort of like in a stuckedness experience at certain moments. Um, and music and dancing do that for me too. I just... Yeah. Beautiful. And what breaks your heart, Allison? Oh gosh. Seeing, well, my children upset. Mm. (laughs) Someone in pain or seeing someone embarrassed, you know, I I really, as an empath, I can really feel uh, when people are hurting. And so despair breaks my heart. Um, humiliation, just negative unkindness. Uh, a lot has broken my heart these past couple of years. Yes. Loss, grief, but really, I mean, the biggest thing breaking my heart is would be anything happening to my children. Mm-hmm. Even if just like somebody says something silly to them and I see their face flash with sadness, my heart just shudders. I'm always so touched when a parent speaks about their children with such reverence. I mean, we all feel it, but there's something about the way that you speak about your children that is just really beautiful. Yeah, it's just mind blowing. You know, it's, I, I grew up, you know, we fall, you fall in love when you're young and you love your parents and you love your, your elders or you love family members. And, and then you fall in love with someone who you want to have children with. And you think, okay, great. I know this love thing. And then you hold your child for the first time, regardless of where they came from, through you, adoption, whoever, wherever they came from, you hold that child and then you realize you have never known what love is Mm. until you love your child. I mean, it's just, it it blows my mind. I'm finding that I I am 
falling more in love with my child, the older she gets. Like, of course I had that moment of like, oh my God, this being right. But it's like the older she gets and the more she has this personality, I'm like falling in love with her as a person. Right. Every day, every day. This being said, I love my friends who choose not to have children. Oh, totally. (laughs) It is simultaneously the most magical and most challenging uh, thing to do raise children that's so, real talk girl i'm on three hours of slave you don't, gotta tell me <laughs> i respect you so much because there is no turning back no um, no turning back <laughs> i don't think everybody should have children but you know, for me that that's what the experience has been and the last question is is a big one it is what's your favorite food Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so hard because I love so many different types of food. I would have to sort of, can I categorize it at least? Sure. This picking. Yeah. I love Asian food. Hmm. I love Korean food, um, Japanese food. I like very like saucy, savory, spicy. I want to feel something when I eat, you know. I want to have oh, like, I like that. I like the way you just said that. Like, I want to feel something when I eat. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can get down with that <laughs> reaction to my food. Not not a terrible reaction, but I like things with very complex textures and layers and like bring on the condiments or the kimchi. Or- <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time someone's like made me legitimately know, hungry <laughs> as they're talking about food. Normally I'm like, oh yeah, totally. I'm like, oh, I want some of that. I've got you know these people that have done this mukbang phenomenon. Uh, mm. Have you seen this? Where people no. Like, my kids, of course, got me into this. There are people that will sit there and eat food, um, which is funny because in a restaurant, if someone's chewing loudly, it's I I almost want to leave the room. <laughs> yes. Mild misophonia. Mm-hmm. But I watch these people eat like ramen, for example, and dump all of these sauces and scallions and peppers. And I'm like, this is what we have to have for dinner. Uh, <laughs> I know what I'm having for dinner. I know. Thank I'm, you. It's actually growling. I'm about to go out and tell John, like, okay, so we're either having Korean, we're having ramen, we're having Japanese, like definitely. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on. This was, this was a pleasure. And yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for people like you who just show up and essentially offer their gifts to the world, mm-hmm. even if it took a couple of people in your life being like, do it, do it. Right. But it's, it's a gift and it needs to be shared. And, and so I appreciate you sharing it kind of at all costs, really. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, I feel very honored to be, to be talking to the two of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to, if I could just say one last thing, Yeah, I think a lot of people think that when we're healers, that we don't hurt and we don't have tough times and experiences and, I'm, you know, not that I'm trying to start a movement by any means, but I think it's so important for people to know that there should be no shame associated with needing to talk to someone or Mm. needing healing because even I need to talk to someone at times and I need my own healers. Um, And so we're all just human. This is just what I've been destined to do and love doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Allison, if our listeners would like to continue to connect with you, how can they find you? How can they follow you? That type of thing. Um, my website is talktoallison.com and my name is spelled A-L-L-I-S-O-N. I'm on social media. I have an Instagram account under my name, Allison Chawla, C-H-A-W-L-A, but I'm very torn about social media because mm. I practice and preach, don't spend a lot of time on it. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I honestly <laughs> don't, yeah. I really don't have a lot up there. And I, you know, to set an example for my kids, I try not to spend much time on it. Uh, so really, I would say my website or you can, I respond to people that message me on that as well as on Instagram. Okay. Beautiful. Well, such a delight to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. This Likewise. was really fun. This is, this is real, a real blessing for the day. Thank you. Mm. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast.